Welcome to a Script to Screen workshop podcast. Script to Screen is a charitable organisation developing the craft and culture of storytelling for the screen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In May 2021, Script to Screen partnered with the Aotearoa Screen Publicists Collective to present the A to Z of screen publicity wānanga. The aim of the workshop was to show the many ways screen publicists can work alongside creatives to ensure their stories are discovered and watched by their target audiences. The sessions were recorded and this is one of 10 that you can listen to. Each session has its own whakatauki befitting the theme of the discussion. Waiho ite toipoto, kawa ite toiroa. Let us keep close together, not wide apart. Welcome to Hello World. In this session, we hear from two publicists working in the United States who give us the temperature of America as the world slowly reopens. First up, Michelle Huff Elliott, co-founder and partner at Strategic Heights Media in a kōrero with Brooke Howe. Michelle manages strategic publicity campaigns for high-end clients. She talks with Brooke about what international publicists' pitches look like and multicultural marketing in the North American context. Kia ora koutou katoa e te whānau, uh, ko Taranaki me Nongotaha uh, nā maunga, ko te rere o Kāpuni me uh, Utahina nā awa, ko Aotea me te Aroa nā waka, uh, ko Te Atiawa me Te Aroa nā iwi, ko Te Aroha me uh, Tūno hopu, hopu uh, nā marae, uh, Ko Hawe Te Whānau, uh, ki te taha o Takumāma, ko Joyce Rawa, ko Taki Farirangi na Tupuna, ko Doris Takumāma, ko Brooke Takuingua, uh, no Porirua Hau, uh, kei Tamaki Makoto Taku Kainga Naiane, no reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, e aku rangatira kua tai mai nei ki tēnei kaupapa whakaherehere, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, kia koe Michelle, no mai haere mai ki tēnei wahi, uh, he mihi nui uh, tēnei ki tō tūpuna, ki tō whānau, uh, ki ngā hau e whā hei ārahi, Anna Eakwe Kitine Kopapa. Kia ora, everyone. Um, I acknowledge you all, my esteemed colleagues, um, and thank you for joining us today for this important occasion. Uh, to Michelle, um, I welcome you as well into this space, um, and I acknowledge your ancestors, your family, and the four winds that have guided you here today because this is a very important discussion. We're going to try and tackle multicultural marketing. <laughs> um, which is a bit of a minefield in and of itself, and there's a lot to unpack. So we've only got 25 minutes to try and get through as much as we can. Um, so we will try and get to audience questions, but Michelle is a, is, has a wealth of knowledge to share um, and would love to hear, hear in her words her experience. Um, so just to give you a bit of context around Michelle's background, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to just read, I'm going to read the bio, but I, I'm going to give her the opportunity to also talk to it um, and maybe dive into a bit more detail around um, where your passion lies within this space and your own experience as a, as a black publicist in America. Um, so Michelle began working with the big, big boys right from the start as an international marketing director for Virgin Records. While at Virgin, Michelle worked with icons such as Janet Jackson, uh, Lenny, Lenny Kravitz, the Neptunes, Tina Turner and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, Michelle then moved to New York City to become the in-store director of events for Donna Karen. After proving herself as a major force in her field, Michelle decided to go back to her roots and conquer the entertainment industry. In 2002, Michelle decided to take the entrepreneurial path and start her very own company, Huff Events and PR, a full-service event planning and media relations boutique agency specialising in the entertainment, sports and fashion industries. In 2015, Michelle merged her company with Simone Small's PR and together they launched Strategic Heights Media. Michelle is also the co-founder of the Publicist Forum, a community for publicists of colour, and she currently sits on the board of the Multicultural Media Correspondents Association. Michelle continues to be a mentor to big brothers, big sisters, and participates in community service programs in Baltimore and New York City. So homai te pakipaki for Michelle. Um, thank you so much, Michelle, um, for joining us today. And as I said, um, I think a really great place to start would, if you could talk us through your background, um, where did you get your start, um, your areas of expertise, what you're passionate about, and what keeps you kind of in the entertainment industry? Ooh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> we all want Good to know. Morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thanks to Brooke, Jackie, all of you there for having me for this amazing occasion. Trust me, I've been where you all are sitting at this very moment. And just to really, I want to just try to make my answers a little short, just try to really get to more in-depth topics about multicultural PR and marketing. But I actually went to school with the thought of being a lawyer. And when I went to college, that's what I wanted to do. And then I ended up meeting someone who was a rapper at the time. And she had a really popular song that was played on TV countdowns, on music countdowns with one of the members of Wu-Tang Clan at the time. And I was just like, what do you do? Like, you have a song out and you're in college? And so just from traveling with her for performances, I remembered calling my parents and telling them, I want to be in the music industry. I don't want to go to law school anymore. And they thought I was crazy. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to be behind the scenes. I always enjoyed that rush that you get with helping to market and push someone and letting people know, like, you may not know who they are now, but you're going to know who they are a year from now. So I always enjoyed that journey. And I think, as you all know, from sitting where you are, being aspiring filmmakers, publicists, and marketing, et cetera, you really have to be the person that's there creating the buzz and really being creative and passionate about what you want to do. And I knew it was something I was passionate about, even sitting here. I knew that this was the field for me. Like, I always enjoyed meeting new people. I'm really not afraid of people telling me no. Like, of course, it hurts my feelings, but I, it doesn't bother me. So I just enjoy this industry so much. So I ended up going to grad school because my parents said, well, since you're not going to go, you know, be a lawyer, you need to just have a backup. And uh, so I went to school, uh, grad school and got my business degree. I have an MBA in marketing. And from that, I ended up, like like said, going to uh, work at Virgin Records and leading their international department. So I was able to travel the world and do what I love, work with many artists, um, like she mentioned uh, before, I still work with artists and still have amazing relationships with them. But that's really what spearheaded my career and interest in entertainment with someone I met in college. And that just 
passion and fire for the entertainment industry has traveled throughout my career. Uh, I actually, she didn't mention, Brooke didn't mention in my bio, but I actually worked with the American Black Film Festival for 11 years, and they're the largest festival for filmmakers of color. So Ryan Coogler, who directed Black Panther, he came from the festival. And I remember when he first won there and having to media train him because he was scared to do an interview to look at him now. I mean, it's amazing having these amazing relationships with uh, filmmakers now that I saw from the very beginning. So, I mean, it's still today, to this day, I still have a passion for working with television networks, film studios, as well as uh, different celebrities, musicians, and artists to help people know about their projects and know about their films and TV shows and really be excited about it. So, I mean, I, I constantly, I don't turn it off now that I work for myself. It's a 24-hour cycle. Like, I have a notebook that's next to my bed that I write ideas and even today, I had a meeting. Um, we're currently working with Ashanti because next year will be her 20th anniversary of the release of her first album. And just I constantly think um, and of creative ideas to promote. And I think that that's what's really uh, a character, a characteristic and trait that you must have, as you all know, that passion and fire to want to always be thinking about where you're going and what you're working on and the project you're working on. So that's really important. And I still have that fire to this day. So my passion's still there, Brooke. I still have it. Amazing. Because um, we've done a whole day around different parts of publicity and how um, it's, it's great that you talked about the artists that you work with, especially earlier on in the career, because there was a workshop around um, the publicist-artist relationship and how nurturing that can make such a, a drastic difference to um, a publicity campaign. But I think the kind of things that you've talked about just, just now shows the, the range of a publicist's role. And there are a lot of misconceptions around what a publicist does. I think in this room, everyone sort of has a firm understanding of that. But when you go out into it to work with marketing teams um, for studios and stuff, sometimes there is a lack of understanding or education around what a publicist does. So in your words, especially from an American perspective as well, how would you define the role of a publicist and how can this be advantageous on a project? And let me just tell you, I'm looking down as Brooke is speaking because as a publicist, I'm constantly thinking. So I have to like scribble notes. So I remember to make sure that I'm giving you all the nuggets because I didn't have this when I was um, interested in going into PR and entertainment, uh, what, 25 years ago? I know I'm 26 years old now. <laughs> But I always have to make notes because I want to make sure I, I don't forget to leave something out that I want to tell you because I, it's just so much information to offer. But there are several types of, of publicity. When I started out in publicity 25 years ago, it was just traditional PR. You manage the publicity and media relationships. You foster those relationships with people in the media. So they're interested in wanting to write about or interview your client. So that could be a, an album coming out, a film, television show. It could even be a product or you know a new uh, like dr drug in the health industry. Whatever you're promoting, that's really what it was back then, traditional PR. Now we've kind of gone into, now that we have social media and the TikTok and Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and now you have to know, really know about digital marketing. 
And publicists, a lot of publicists are not familiar. They will hire companies to do it. But it's always great to have a PR team or a publicist that you're working with that really understands digital marketing and the social media landscape because it really helps you to create a really detailed PR strategy and campaign for your client. Like they're paying you, of course, to get them interviews, but a lot of these media outlets are now doing their interviews on IG Live, Facebook Live. They're using all of these other social media platforms. So you have to figure out what's the best way to market and promote your client. Also, working with a lot of film and TV shows, it's unit publicity. And I've done that. I've worked with HBO and the show The Wire. I don't know if you're familiar with The Wire. Um, I'm from Baltimore. So anything that's Baltimore, about Baltimore based there, I'm so passionate about. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, which The Wire was based. And I actually was the unit publicist for The Wire. And so usually what unit publicists do, you're there from the beginning of taping until the end of that series, whether it's a movie or a film. And then usually after they have that finished product, that film or that TV show, they'll use the publicist within the TV network or the film studio, or they're hiring outside agency to take that finished product and promote it to the world. So the unit publicist manages just all the on-site PR as far as letting, if you see a lot of times in your entertainment shows, you'll see, oh, we have a camera crew here and we're on the set of such and such film. That unit publicist managed that. So I usually like doing both roles because when you're a unit publicist, you're there from the beginning to the end. So you build a relationship with the cast members, the crew, the producers. You become familiar with hmm, what cast member is stronger in media interviews. Some people aren't comfortable doing interviews. Even as a filmmaker, you may just say, I want to just do the work. I want to direct or I want to produce. I don't want to do an interview. I mean, I know so many directors and, and producers who are that way. They're just like, I have no interest in doing interviews. That's for the talent. I don't care. But it's really good now we're realizing that filmmakers, you have to feel a little comfortable. We always tell them, do one or two. Let's just focus on one or two interviews. So that's usually the difference between traditional marketing, unit publicity, as well as digital, um, digital marketing, traditional publicity, and unit publicity. So those are usually the three areas. Fortunately for me, I'm very familiar with all three. So when I work with the film festival, and I know that there's a new uh, publicist forum and organization there, and it's it's great, as you know, as publicists, you really should be well-faceted. Like, I have a vast music background, but now I've worked a lot in film and television, so now I can really offer my suggestions for PR strategy not just based on a narrow vision or a narrow view. I can really give a really whole 360 approach to maybe you guys should think of, you know, some type of consumer events or doing something virtual online for fans. Or what about these marketing? Let's do a partnership with, you know, some water company. Like I can really look at it from a bigger perspective. So I think that that's, those are skills that are really needed now because a lot of companies want more bang for their buck. They're like, oh, okay, if I'm paying you X amount of dollars, I really want to make sure that I'm getting all these media impressions, right? Oh, I want all these eyes of the consumer looking and being like, oh, I'm going to go see that movie now and talking about it on social media. So I think that a publicist role is very important, but depending on what type of publicist you are, depends on when you'll be a part of that timeline for that specific product that you're promoting. But I would suggest, especially if you're starting out, 
really volunteer. Like if you know it's a TV show or a, a film being done there, volunteer. I want to shadow the unit publicist. Or if you're an up-and-coming filmmaker, hi, can I shadow you? I mean, it's really important because now everyone is aware of how amazing and exciting this industry is. Back when I started, people were looking at me crazy. Like, you want to do what? You want to work at a record label? It wasn't popular like it is now. So just take advantage of all those opportunities and always tell people to continue to think outside the box and how you can stand out and be different from someone else. Because even the person next to you as well, you want to stand out, but you also want to network. You never know who you're sitting next to. You never know. So really making sure that you're introducing yourself to people. This is a great platform and a great event. You should know everyone in the room. You should at least take away 10 new contacts from this event and keep in touch with people because you never, you all can help each other. So I just think, I just wanted to just add that in there because I think as a really good publicist, especially in the multicultural space or the consumer general space, networking is key, really being knowledgeable in your field and really trying to understand all facets of PR and not just saying tunnel vision into one area. It's a challenge for everyone today. You got 10, you got to take away <laughs> 10 names. Yes. <laughs> Maybe more. Um, I want to kind of hone in a little bit more on the role of a publicist and how being involved earlier on can help mitigate a lot of um, risks um, because you bring in an intellectual and cultural perspective that is sometimes overlooked in that process. Um, the entertainment industry is one where the failures are as public as the successes and sometimes mm-hmm. more than the successes. Um, there's been stuff that's happened in New Zealand that's come out as well. And, I mean, in America it's been happening for a really long time. Um, and, you know, there are times where project, projects can be overshadowed by something untowards, um, either by an individual or a production or a studio. It's pretty... Um, pretty vast these days on on how that can happen, which means that publicists have to pivot within a project. So you're, you're focused on the project itself, but then this thing comes up and that's all anyone's talking about. And so you have to go into crisis mode a little bit. Um, have you ever experienced that with a project? Um, and if you have, would you be comfortable to share that with the room and how, what your approach was and what learnings you took away from it? Yes. So for my company now, we work um, like Comcast Xfinity. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they're the largest um, cable company here in the United States. So they own Universal Pictures. They pretty much own everyone. (laughs) And uh, we do a lot of general market public relations, but majority of our client base are centered around multicultural. So we work with, whether it's targeting African-Americans, Latina, Asian-American, Etc. So I think that it's important as an individual, it doesn't even matter what ethnicity you are, really being knowledgeable if you can, um, working with all of those different areas and just becoming a little familiar because like I said, 25 years ago, people didn't really care about African-American press or, or Latina press. They just really cared about general market, like the larger publication. So I just want to say that just to add on what you were talking about as far as being a multicultural publicist and focusing on that. As far as crisis PR, 
we actually did have a situation. Um, and I think with crisis PR, what people do, they tend to be reactionary instead of proactive. So you should always have a plan in place. Like if something goes left, even whatever project you're working on, it doesn't matter. An album release, TV show, film, if something happens, especially now you're seeing all the subject matters tend to be about, you know, Black Lives Matter or a cop shooting someone. Like a lot of the film and TV show topics are really, really, you know, opening up and really embracing those topics. So it's about being prepared, even if nothing happens, but it's about having that crisis PR plan in place. We actually did have a situation where we worked and it was very public. So it's nothing private here that I'm sharing, but it's actually a learning lesson and it helps a lot of people when I speak on panels to discuss it. Um, but I don't know if you all know Zoe Saldana. Um, she was an avatar and a couple other films and she actually decided to take on a role to play Nina Simone. And the film quality that taped it, they had filmed it many years prior to, and then it, a new director came on board and tried to color correct the film and do different things. And Zoe Saldana and her co-lead actually invested in the film. So they were producers of the film as well as starring in it. And once it, they kind of did a few previews, a lot of media people uh, started saying that the color, they why did they have her play Nina Simone? And she's not African-American, she's Latina. Why is she doing the color? How they did the makeup? I mean, it was a huge, in the States, it was a huge crisis situation. And so they were really thinking about pulling the film off of just not even releasing it. And then they contacted us about working on it. And we developed the film, I mean, I developed the strategy for Zoe to show the film to the first thing you have to do is find out who your friends are, not your foes, not the media people who are talking negative, but the people that we have, we all have them, the low-hanging fruit of media that we could go to and really have an honest conversation. Like, we want you to be honest. We don't want you to really dog the film, but we just want you to hear Zoe's side as to why she got involved and write a positive piece. So that's always the first step in crisis PR, finding out who your foes are in media. I mean, I'm sorry, who your friends are in media, not the people talking negatively about about it, but the people that are really going to support and just offer their honest opinion. We don't want them to lie, but we just want them to really just be supportive. So, and really hear, like I said, Zoe's side of things. And so we did um, a screening in Atlanta with Zoe because, unfortunately, I knew Zoe before this. I, I was friends with Zoe. So she trusted me because she had she's friends with me. And she said, only because you're doing it, I feel comfortable that I, I trust you. And I know you're not going to throw me into the lion's den um, and make it worse. And so we had about 20 media people come and really just speak with her one-on-one. -on -one. They viewed the film and she just was really saying that I want, I, I've grown up listening to Nina Simone and she's a huge uh, mentor and role model to me. And I wanted to pay tribute. That's why I sang all the music myself. And I just really wanted to pay tribute and honor her and not, do it in a way where it's, you know, negative to her image and to her brand. And so after they spoke with her, we got about 10 or 12 really positive reviews and, and coverage from that. So that was a really, really, I mean, because it was all over the press. I mean, it was, Zoe was out of the public eye for like a year because of that. So it was, it was a really, really uh, huge spectacle here. But in crisis PR, that's really the main thing. Be proactive and not reactionary. Have a crisis, a PR strategy and plan in place for anything that you're going to release just to be prepared. 
Um, and then really make sure you find out who your friends and media are. Who, even if it's two people, it doesn't have to be 10. If it's two media people that you trust and you know that they're going to really give a good light and spin a good light for your client, then that's what you do. But that's really important as a publicist, thinking quick on your feet. So that sort of brings us back to um, what was covered yesterday around that artist-publicist um, relationship and how crucial that can be. Um, I think more in times of crisis than in when you're celebrating, pretty much, because that's where that bond really shines through, but also your relationships with media. So um, I think publicity in general is it's relationship building and who who you can form those good relationships with to use in these instances. Um, we mm-hmm. are getting really short on time, but I'm going to... I'm going to jump ahead because we've kind of covered around um, multicultural marketing and why it's important through what we've already discussed so far. But um, Mm -hmm. navigating the multicultural space can be a minefield. Um, Cultural competency is constantly changing and evolving as we learn what what words we're supposed to be using, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, but I want to be specific here and look at it from a deliverables perspective. What do you think? What do you think the crucial um, areas are that are often overlooked or not considered? Um, and by that I mean, for example, uh, stills photography. When you're working with people of color, someone who doesn't know how to shoot people of color, and what how that can be important for the outputs on a on a project. I think it's really important, and I think a lot of companies are learning, like your H&Ms. I'm thinking of all the people that had issues with what you just mentioned as far as photography, photo stills, photo shoots, as we see with Vogue, uh, uh, magazine covers, clothing that's inappropriate, or sayings we saw with Gucci and H&M. I think it's very important to have people of color, and I just want to make sure that that's encompassing Asian, Latina, African-American, Black, because you have to have them, someone on the creative team, someone that's making these decisions. It has to be, it can't just be someone, the homogenous group of people. It's so interesting because my husband and I were having a conversation about this a few months back, and we were just saying that a lot of times we were approached by a lot of times we end up getting a, a rushed account that I like to call it from companies who, and I'm talking about large companies here, and they'll try to do an ad campaign and promote it. And then they get, like you just mentioned, they'll have a photo where it's the lightning, like you said, they don't know how to shoot. And then it's a problem. And then they come to us and say, oh, how, you know, in a crisis situation, how could we prevent this? What can we do? And it's like, well, it's very important that you have someone creative, whoever's the photographer, you have to have an honest conversation. Have you shot someone of color before? If not, maybe we need to bring this person in to assist you, or maybe we need to have another photographer. But I also think it's important for the person in that position, in that role to also ask questions as well. I know for models, it's a little different as far as if it's an H&M shoot or you're modeling some type of clothing, because as a model, you're told just to model the clothes. But if you're on a magazine cover, and I think that that's the the one thing we all love Beyonce, but she's very much in control of her, how she's put out there, her image. She always makes sure that she's a part of the process of hiring the photographer, hiring the stylist, letting them being a part of the creative process as far as the direction of the shoot and what it's going to look like. And I think that that's very very important for the artist or celebrity or whoever the talent is to be vocal about that. 
saying, okay, who's the person shooting me? Are they familiar with shooting, you know, my skin, my skin type? Or what about the hair, the glam team? Are they used to my type of hair? Like you have to ask those questions. I think sometimes that we're afraid. So we have to also, it's a, it's a responsibility on both sides. But I also think it, it can become a nightmare for a publicist and or a manager <laughs> of a talent or a specific organization that's on the other side. So I think that we all have to just make sure we're asking a lot of questions. And sometimes people are kind of fearful, but I'd rather have the tough conversations. And we tell it to our staff all the time because our staff is very mixed. You know, we have, a, so we have these open conversations and we're just like, oh, if someone says something, oh, what does that mean? Like we say, be honest, ask the questions. If you're not familiar, ask them anyway. Like don't feel like any question's a stupid question, but you have to make people feel comfortable in that space to ask those questions. So I think that that's very important, especially now. Great. We um we only have time for one more question, and there's a lot of pressure because I got to make it a good one. Um, but I'll make sure they encompass even whatever question is not. I'll ask answer broadly. Great. Um, I you know we actually do have a lot more questions that I could pick from, but I think it's important that we cover mental health and self care because as a publicist, um, and when you're working with a range of different people, artists, creatives, studios, business people, you can take a lot on board because um, I think Tamar yesterday said publicists are problem solvers. If you if you like to solve problems, then publicity like is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you tend to put yourself last in those situations and how, how do you um, make sure, especially with multicultural um stuff as well. Um, what does cultural competency and duty of care and self-care look like in practice? Right. And I think as a publicist, that's what we do. We're always used to putting everyone in front. And I actually had to learn this lesson, I think about five or six years ago, because I was so used to promoting the client, promoting them all the time on the carpet. And people sometimes, I mean, we can't go outside anymore, but I mean, we can go outside, but it's no red carpet events anymore. And so when we used to be on red carpets, photographers are like, take a photo. And I'm like, no, because I'm I'm working, I'm, you know, but it's just like, and that's something more minute, but I'm just so used to putting everyone ahead. And people say now, the same thing I was telling with aspiring filmmakers and producers and publicists, you have to promote yourself. You have to feel comfortable promoting yourself, but not at where it's going to cost you your mental stability. Because six years ago, like I just mentioned a few seconds ago, I was like, I have to sit down. I used to work to like, I would be in the office about 9, 9.30, get in the office at eight o'clock. I'm like, okay, I'm married. I have a family. Like I really have to make sure that I'm 100% for myself as well as for my family. So about six years ago, I really have a thing now where, but by 6.30 Eastern time, our time here, I'm clocked out of work. It doesn't matter. Everything else will get done during the day, but I'm, I'm not working past a certain point. Um, and I think that it's very important that you have to set your own boundaries as far as what you will and won't do. And I think you have to start out small. I actually, I'm sorry, I'm like allergy season. So I'm just like, whoo. Um, but now I wake up between 5.30 and 6 o'clock daily and I do for 30 minutes to 45 minutes. I meditate, write, I journal. Um, I do stretching, some sort of exercise, and it prepares me for the day. So by 8, 8.30 Eastern time, I'm already on the computer working about a good 45 minutes, 30, 45 minutes before the team comes. And that's how I de-stress 
that's kind of like my calming. I like to be calm and not just come start work when everyone else and they're asking me a thousand questions. So it's certain boundaries that I've set um, for myself, but it gives me just having that meditation and the stretching, like I said, and preparing my morning. And of course my coffee, I need coffee in the morning. Um, and they're just like in staff meetings, they're just like, how are you so energetic? I'm like, because I started my morning off. I'm in a great space. I'm happy. If I'm not happy, you, I'm not going to make you guys happy. So you just have to really learn that even though something's going on with yourself inside, you're still exuding negative or positive energy in space. So you have to be healthy and well insane and stress-free. And of course, you're going to have stressful situations, but it's how you deal with them. I always tell my staff, they get so stressed out. Oh my God, they said they're going to write about this and now they're not. I'm like, okay, let's calm down. Is there a different pitch we can do? Is there someone else we can go to? Like, it's just like, don't waste your energy being upset. Let's think about, let's put energy into solving the problem and not stressing yourself out. So it's just learning how to deal with it in a different way and saving that energy. It's PR, not ER. You'll hear that. You'll hear that a lot. <laughs> um, or on that note, I mean, we could have probably sat here all day talking about this. It's it's a, a, a area that um, I think a lot of people are passionate about, especially within publicity and the in this, the people within this room. We have a very diverse. Brooke, can I ask a question to the audience? Sure. Really quickly, how many publicists, can you raise your hand? How many publicists are in the room? Sorry, we hang don't have everyone there. in. The <laughs> but hang in there, publicists. Always think outside the box. Don't think of the traditional regular schmegular way. Think outside the box. How many filmmakers are in the room? Raise your hands. Filmmakers, I understand the process. It's not easy. You're going to get that funding. You're going to stay under budget. And if you don't, you know it never stays under budget. But you're going to get the, going to get the film made and produced and done. Stick to it. Remember, I work with Ryan Coogler, Malcolm D. Lee. Ava DuVernay was a publicist like me. And look at her now. Spike Lee, you guys can do it. Hello, Steven Spielberg. Like, hang in there. I know what the process is like. It all into a bunch of festivals. <laughs> amazing. On that note, thank you so much, Michelle. Um, that was amazing. Um, and thank you for your time. Um, again, Hormai Tapakapaki for Michelle. Cool. Thanks for having me. Now we hear from David Magdale, a publicist who has over two decades in PR and marketing for award-winning documentary films, indie features, and broadcast content. David Magdale and Associates have become an important leader in the field. David speaks with me, Gemma Gracewood, Editor-in-Chief at Letterboxd and a founding member of the Aotearoa Screen Publicists Collective. I am okay. incredibly delighted to um, welcome you to this room. Um, just a bit of an intro, David is a publicity veteran in Hollywood. His company, David Magdale and Associates, have become an important leader in the field of documentary films, indie features, and broadcast products. David strategizes premieres and Oscar campaigns. Um, one of your films, The Mole Agent, was just a, an Oscar finalist. So awesome. Yes. And also works deeply on making impact with very important social 
good stories. Recent films include The Mole Agent, Wuhan Wuhan, Hunger Ward, For Summer, which absolutely broke me, Minding the Gap, and even Crazy Rich Asians, uh, and so much more. David is also co-director of the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival and has been for a good couple of decades and very active in the LA Asian American film community. So happy AAPI Heritage Month to you. And kia ora and welcome to Aotearoa New Zealand for a few minutes. Um, also, thanks very much to the Embassy um, of the United States of America for uh, enabling Michelle and David to both give of their time today. And the reason I wanted you here is because I have a lot of publicity companies in the States in my inbox every day. But very few of them have a clear point of view or obvious social conscience. Most of them are just dropping a press release and running. But um, every time I hear from David Magdale and Associates, I take the time to read and see what it is you're shilling to me. <laughs> so I wanted to um, start with asking why is it why is that important to you? And um, how does it help your business? You know, thank you for, for having me. First of all, thank you for having me. It's so good to be here in New Zealand with you. I wish we were there in person. Uh, I love looking across the room and I see all these amazing faces. It's like, it just gives me hope. She, you know, I've been doing this for, for a while, for since, um, in, in film publicity since 1999. Um, and we've been at the Oscars every year representing a film at the Oscars, whether it's in the short documentary category or in the, documentary uh, feature category, docs are my world only because they speak to me as a person. I'm very fortunate to have a job that I love. Um, you know, with documentaries, everybody wanted to be, wants to be like in the publicity side too. I found a lot of folks wanted to be mostly on the red carpet. And I'm like, ooh, that's my, that's the scariest thing for me. Cause you know, I have documentaries and we always get turned down by the red carpet cause I don't have Angelina Jolie. Well, we did have her once and that was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm really fortunate because I've been now doing this, you know, when I actually took the leap and I just closed my eyes, I said, this is what we're going to do. Uh, probably really, I started in 99 uh, doing film publicity. That was the first Oscar campaign. But in 2001, I had to come to Jesus moment in my life and I said, this is what we're going to do. Because I wasn't happy doing a lot of other things like doing public affairs work for, you know, um, campaigns on anti-tobacco, teen pregnancy. Those are all important. But I didn't really, it didn't speak to me. So when I jumped off, it was mostly in the documentary world. And as a community person, because that's my background, that really spoke to me. And also, too, there weren't a whole lot of people that were really in the documentary, you know, world. And now we fast forward 20 years later and documentaries are the thing. You know, we so many of us are watching them. Pandemic made us stay at home and look for good content. And Lord knows that you look at Netflix, 80% of that stuff is not very good. Oh, I shouldn't say that right. Anyway, 20% of that stuff is like really good content, right? I mean, you really enjoy things. <laughs> nice save, lot. nice save. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but like I said, you know, for me to work in the documentary space is really, really speaks to my heart. Um, I love working with uh, films and filmmakers who have, recorded or documented somebody's life in real time or something that someone went through and came out on the other end, or there was a history of someone who did something that is inspiring. And for me, I'm just hoping that that inspiration and that greatness that those people bring to the table will rub off on me because I just really want to make sure that whatever we get involved in, and I'm so fortunate to have my own business because I can pick and choose what I get to, to work with, that 
somehow the films that we take on are going to like influence change or like really like help lift up uh, the world. I mean, we're in such a crazy time. If anything pandemic taught us was like, what is essential in our lives? Right. You know, it's like, what else am I going to waste my time on? And, you know, what, what shopping holes that I go down to? It's like, I didn't realize that I spent all this money on Nike, like buying, like, you know, designing my own tennis shoes. Like, really? That's what you're going to do during pandemic? Um, you know, but that was the way we did. But, you know, when I when I look at publicity and I look at what we do, and even like for like what Michelle does and what we all try to do and being people of color in America, doing publicity is a big deal. You know, it's, it's a really big deal um, because we can bring a perspective to a project that a lot of people don't have. And it's not just cookie cutter and everything, but we want to go deep. So oftentimes when I work on documentaries, but also I get to play, you know, like when, let's see, Chow Yun-Fat or Jet Li come to the States and got a project, I get called by the studios because we work a lot with the um, Asian, uh, oops, with the Asian um, uh, press. And, um, you know, we get, to, we get to play in that realm. And that's always kind of fun because then it's like on, on that side. Our involvement with Crazy Rich Asians was with Warner Brothers, they came to me and they said, look, you're in the community. We want to put together this community outreach team because we needed to feed uh, the first responders, you know, to this film first, right? And there were 10 of us. They were smart enough and it was um, by, Tara. Can I just ask, by first responders, yeah. you don't mean emergency services, right? What do you mean? No, I mean, I mean people that are would like be our first people that are going to say, I want to buy a ticket to go see that movie, right? We knew they are going to be Asian-American folks or folks that look like me. Um and they put together a team of like 10 people who were within the community that were still in entertainment. And they just let us like run wild, run free and said, what do you, what, what do we need to do? And with that, it was so much fun because we, they showed it to us early. The film didn't come out till August. We got to see it in February. And right away I thought, oh shit, every, oh, oh shoot. Fine, Everybody's going to love this movie. They're going to come back and they're going to tell their friends to go see this. So we thought, how do we let it out first? So we were able to go through that with a large studio and Warner Brothers was so cool because they said, you know, whatever you guys want to do, we have the budget to do. And I'm so used to working on like smaller films that are going around from community to community doing their dog and pony show. Hey, would you come see my movie? But now we had, you know, um, uh, uh, assets that we could actually go out to and do screenings that we're going to do. So that, that part was a lot of fun, but I think it's also really important, you know, and here we live, you know, uh, dealing with Hollywood, for me, inclusivity and being very open to all of that. And I hate the word diversity because I live diversity every day. And I think that's kind of overused in, in our business. But I think also, too, it's important that these studios kind of lean into that when they when at, at all times that is possible because it's fast becoming so important. And for the younger, new, the newer, I would say younger, the newer uh, markets are coming through. They all want to see themselves. They all want to see themselves represented. So... Well, the, um, I mean, the evidence in terms of the, the box office impact of having uh, leads of colour is, it's, it's there. They've done the work, you know, and there was a big, there was a big study that yeah, just came out absolutely. earlier this year, right? We've all known that. I mean, let's yeah. take a look at Fast and Furious, okay? Let's not get it twisted. That's been going on for a while. <laughs> you know, I look at, you know, and you take a look at, look at that poster, like, and I think Fast and Furious number nine is coming out. And you take a look at who's on there and it's like, it's very real and it sells and it's good. It's not like, oh, you know, we don't know how that's going to translate. We know how it translates. And we know, and I'm looking at this this crowd here, it's for you. 
you know, these are the people that want to see. We want to see those stories. Anyway, blah 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 blah. Oh blah, yeah, blah, blah. just I'm just on the on the study, which I'll I'll find a link. Uh, there's a link to it in the publicity toolkit we'll be sharing with you. But this particular study, which found that the box office impact of projects with black directors and black leads is 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 infinitely greater than just your average Hollywood product. Yet the uh, the the funding budgets of films made by black directors is 10% or more below budgets of your average Hollywood film. So there's a real, yeah, there's a real... Uh, and so, not just in, you know, with, you know, ethnic, not just with BIPOC, which is black indigenous people of color. I think female directors have always had a hard time, especially for feature films. I mean, but then you look at it, it's, it's all I can say, is it getting better? Yes. Can it do more? Yes. Um, and I don't know how many of you in this in this room are filmmakers. Hands up. But, and if you are, please make your film. They're looking for you. They're looking for story. You know, so, don't sit around thinking like, oh, I don't know what to do. Nobody has time for I don't know what to do anymore. Pandemic has taught us that, that y'all need to get up, write that story because they're looking for that story. Understand them. You have the power. There's nobody that says, there is no like, oh, the man's keeping me down. Oh, no, it's you. You got to do it yourself. Anyway, let me show them. Go ahead. I love it. Um, we Because we... Um, you know, don't have three days. We have to sort of keep quite tight to time. So I'm just thinking about a couple of questions that are infinitely helpful for the people in this room, for our community to to learn from you. And in keeping with the fakatoki for this session, which is waiho ite toi poto, koa ite toi roa. Let us keep close together, not wide apart. So um, I know that you have come across some of us Kiwis through your work um, with Sundance, um, Chelsea and Taika and um, several others. How would, if, if somebody from here was coming to your market, uh, either for a film festival or to meet with distributors, how can you help? How can a publicist at that point help? I mean, it really depends on where you are in the process of your film. Is this a film let's, that's done? Let's assume yeah. it's made. Yeah. Okay, so 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 it's made. I'll give I you. Mean, I'm going to give you a specific example okay, because okay. the director is in this room. It okay. is a film called Rurangi, and it's a, a, a trans love story. I guess I'm going to say, and um, indigenous love story as well. And it uh, it is coming to Hulu in June for Pride Month. What do they need to do? If they call you, what could you do for them? And how much would it cost? <laughs> well, since it's Hulu, you would charge them everything. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but seriously, what I would the first question would be, if it's going to Hulu, and this is something that you guys as filmmakers will want to ask right when they come in and want to acquire your film, what are you going to do for marketing this film? How are you going to get this out? Is there a film festival plan for this? Is there a way that we're going to do additional screens outside of just, oh, we're just going to put it up on Hulu and hope it lasts. But those are the key questions. When you enter in those rooms that you have to ask those questions, you cannot be afraid to ask those questions. You hold the key to everything because you are the creator of your project and they want to make you happy. You may not get the right answer. You may not get the answer that you want, but at least you need to ask the question. I'm finding more and more in this industry that if you don't ask, you don't get. You know what I mean? It's like they're not, because I hear oftentimes later, it's like, well, they didn't ask for that. So just come in with as many questions as you have them. Come in with a, a list of what you want to do. So like, 
if this film is like, okay, they're going to pick it up and it's going to come out in June, when are they going to start to market it and how are they going to market it? Who is it going to go to? Again, who would be the people, that audience that's really going to take to it as we would say first responders? You know, is it the trans community? Is it the trans indigenous community? Is there more to, you know, to that too? The interesting thing is that we know that trans stories tend to do well in this, you know, uh, more more now than ever, also because there are more of them. We worked on Lingua Franca uh, last year, the year before. One of my favorite films of last year. So beautiful, yeah. And it was the first uh, transgender Filipino female director and actress. Um, It started off at Venice, and then it went to AFI Fest, and then Ava DuVernay's company, Array, picked it up. With her magic and her company, they did. They went, did all the marketing for it, and it really blew up big time. Um, so I think you have the power with with this film, and it's going to Hulu. And if it's Pride Month, okay. My question is, what are you doing with this? Are we going to Frameline in San Francisco? Are we going to be in Outfest in August? Oh in wait, Los hang on. This just in. This is Max, who's in the audience with the microphone. He's going to tell you about Frameline. Hey Max. Uh, hey David. Um, First thing, uh, I'm cisgender, but Rurangi was written by, created by stars and co-produced by trans and gender diverse people. In fact, Cole, the writer and co-producer, is going to be speaking later today. So um, you're not talking to the center of this, but I happen to be here. Um, And Rurangi won the Audience Award at Frameline last year. It's also a series and Hulu's bought the series with a second, you know, with a first look deal for ongoing stuff. And um, we're little, we're just really, really, really tiny. We're just totally punched above our league. So we're just trying to figure out. And there's this other weird thing happened, which is a intersection between, I can't say too much because of an NDA, but me and the Rurangi Fano and RuPaul's Drag Race, because it was shot here. And so we're suddenly getting a lot of promotion through RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. It's actually blowing up just this week. Um, so we're in the storm of kind of publicity with Hulu coming. And yeah, it's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> and we, think, literally, we don't know what to do because we're New Zealanders at the bottom of the world. It's like, yeah. what happens next? <laughs> I mean, it's like with, with RuPaul's um, New Zealand, was it RuPaul Down Under? Yes. yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm friends with Fenton Bailey, one of the producers on that, and I remember when he was there in New Zealand shooting, you know, filming and all that too. Knowing that you're coming, that the film is coming to Hulu and it's going to be like part of Pride Month, maybe there's a way to lean into those guys, like to World of Wonder, and maybe if there's that synergy that you guys are feeling right now with. Um, uh, RuPaul down, RuPaul down under. Maybe there's that synergy that can happen, and they maybe there's something together with them. I don't know what that is. If that's a virtual talk back with them on, you know, in Zoom Zoom world, where you can, you know, kind of level that up during Pride Month. Is that if that could be? And I don't. It's hard for me to speak out of school because I don't know your film. Um, and congratulations on winning uh, the Frame Line. Was it the Audience Award or Jury Prize? It was the Audience Award for Best Feature. Good for you. Yeah. That's great because then that means the audience has spoken and they they've seen it and they were all at home watching stuff. Yeah, yeah it's true. So um, thanks, David. So that's exciting. And so you you specifically work with a lot of uh, international filmmakers whose whose films are not going to storm the box office, but are going to, as you say, travel from community to community. And as a community person yourself, I, I'd just love you to talk a bit about 
how you build community for film and, you know, the idea that, um, you know, we can think of audience as an amorphous mass of people or we can segment them and drill down into the people who care. I think first and foremost, what we end up doing when we start working on a film, a lot of times they'll call us and it's like, oh, my film got into Sundance, right? Um, and I need a publicist. So film festival like Sundance, you're going to need a publicist to help guide you through because it's a mess and it's crazy, but it's a lot of fun. Um, what we try to do, I try to get into the head and our team does of the filmmaker. Why did you make this film? Who's this audience? And let's just drill down. Because you know, as for those of you who are filmmakers, you know why you made this or you know why you're writing it or why you're filming it and why you're editing it, like who you really want this to go to. So, you know, let's go, let's break it down to to, the, to brass tactics. Like who's going to be in your mind the 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 audience that you want to reach. And then how do we do that? And it's very collaborative because I don't know what you're thinking or our team doesn't, but if we work together with you, we can find that and we can all make suggestions and bringing that on together. And then on top of that, something else kind of came in in the last three years and more so this year because it's stay at home, the use of social media, both paid social media ads as well as organic social media ads. So now we've added in another level or another team where that we don't do because we work on press, but bringing these experts in that are doing social media uh, marketing, quote unquote. Um, there's some people that are really, really great at that who understand what those what those uh, dynamics are and how to reach those people. Um, for us in award season, social media was key. It was like hitting these people at home in the right place. Well, I was going to ask you that. How do you run an Oscar campaign on Zoom? You know, especially for oh, a film like The great. Mole Agent so from great. South America. Uh, but it was amazing. I mean, you know, doing things in award season, it was like, oh my God, how are we going to do it? We're not going to be in gather. But you know what happened? Was because everybody was at home and everybody was like, able to be on Zoom once we once we figured it out, right? Um, we were able to bring, like, I worked on a film called Softy from Kenya. We could do, we could do uh, talkbacks with the director and the subjects all in, you know, at the same time because we could Zoom everybody in. I didn't have to really, you know, wait for someone to come all the way to LA or to New York or to San Francisco, right? So we were able to do it on, and then we could pre-tape a whole lot of stuff and then we pretended that it was live. So we said, oh yeah, come to the Q&A discussion, but it was already pre-taped. Um, but then it was like something, you made it an event. So we, we basically made it work to our advantage with that. And in terms of the Oscar side of things, if we're looking at that, it leveled the playing field even more because people were home watching it. And for those films, like say the mole agent didn't have a huge budget let's say like you know some of the bigger ones that were run by by, by netflix because they have larger budgets so they can't bring everybody over so Mank. we were able to, like Mank, yeah. right yeah so you know we were able to utilize the same you know the same um tools that they were all using and really bring in the audience and the best thing that happened was People who came in and watched uh, what was going on and watched the Q&As or if we did a watch party with the film and if we left the live chat open while they were watching, it was amazing because the interaction that we're having, the people that were in there just wanted, are the ones that really wanted to be in there. We had a film called Mr. Soul, which is that poster back there. And it's like a documentary about uh, a man in 1968 to 1973, a black man who was openly gay, had his own television show on PBS and he was bringing black love, black life, black culture to across America. So he introduced 
music groups like uh, music acts like uh, Astrid and Simpson, Donnie Hathaway, uh, Roberta Flack, Stevie Wonder, people like that. And it became this joyous celebration. Whenever we did watch parties, folks came in and just the chat room as they were watching was incredible. And it was just so we I say all that to say we utilize whatever was available to us during pandemic and Zoom was really, really, really great to have. And in fact, with that particular movie, we opened up our own platform on virtual cinema uh, through this other platform called Eventive. And we called our platform Open Your Eyes and Think MF. And we just came up with uh, films that weren't necessarily going to be in theaters. Um, and we were able to put it out there. And we did pretty well with that 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 title just to bring things at home because everybody was at home looking for content. And that film in particular, because of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd killing, really spoke to a lot of people who needed to hear from Ellis Hazlip, who put everything on the line, 68 to 73, to speak to the communities like, this is what we need to do. I mean, I'm going to say this, like for all of you that's in here, the whole world is in this whole change that's going on. There's a change of power. There's a shift of everything right now. And I'm older than you. So I've had my revolution. You know, that was something we ought to stand up for. But this is yours. And you guys as artists, even you people as, as publicists or writers, this is your time. You can shape whatever you want to do, what your future is going to look like no matter where you live. Because people are listening. They want to know what you guys are, are thinking about and where are we going to go. Anyway. Um, uh, I just want to ask a couple more questions very specifically yeah. to that, um, which is in, in this time, um, are you seeing any changes in Hollywood in terms of the topic of cultural appropriation? <laughs> I think it's always has been going on, as you guys all know. What's been happening is a lot of people have been called on the carpet, which has been great, which is meaning a lot of studios and uh, creators are looking at what am I doing? You know, um, we take a, um, we've been brought on a couple of times, three times, at least in the last four years to look at projects that might be culturally uh, misappropriated, read through the scripts and uh talk with the creators around that. So, and we're not the only ones, there are other um, groups that are uh, been pulled in from studios and, and places like that. Are and the, the, good are the thing creators is, in this case, like white? Yes, mostly they're white men. How, well, they're all white how, men. Do you, do you ever say don't? Is that part of no, your the advice? No, is why. Right, why, okay. Which is, is like, probably a more useful and proactive like, question. Why is, this, you know, why is this important to you? And the other question is like, are you really the right, the correct person to tell the story? I'm not saying that you can't tell the story, but is that something that you came across? Or do you need to, quote unquote, collaborate? You know, everyone's like, oh, no, that means as that white director, I can't tell that story. No, no one's saying that. We're just saying like, Think about it. Do you need to bring in a crew? Do you need to be, what's going to be, because a lot of people don't think about things like that. They think, I got a great story. Let's go. Let's run. But then when you start thinking about it, it becomes very much uh, important to you as a storyteller and becomes even richer when you start to look at that. But I think in the cultural appropriation side, a lot of people just don't even think, I'm going to write that, that, that movie about that, you know, uh, Chinese superhero and it's going to take place in, you know, Japantown. I'm like, okay, really? You know, we're going to have gongs and bells and whistles. It's like, only because if you don't have to think about it, you won't, right? And it's and that's true for anybody across the board. And, you know, I don't want to just call white men out, but it's true for anybody. I think we should, you know, it's just a matter of being aware. 
of all that. And I think more so now. I mean, there's certain films that probably would never have gotten made now than they would than they gotten passed from before because people are paying attention, and it's because people are standing up and saying, "Uh, no, that's not working for me," and nobody wants to make that mistake. On that note, um, my final question for you, as as someone who works deeply in your community and your industry to um, uplift people uh, who might not otherwise have opportunities, a lot of um, a lot of the ways in which you get work experience in our industry is, is born of privilege, the privilege of time and money to be able to intern on things without having to go on, you know, wait tables or whatever. And so, and and recruitment is its own dirty, dark art. So I'm just wondering how you cut through to find people for David McDale and Associates to elevate into the industry and what advice you might have for any company owners in this room. You know what's really key is the word mentoring. It's so key, like to mentor people and get other people to mentor you. Um, we see that happening a whole lot more, you know, be, than than before. And for us, for me personally, on my side, I'm always looking for um, younger people to mentor to get people excited because I don't want to be the only like gay Asian guy that's in film publicity, right? Um, and especially in the documentary world. I mean, I find sometimes I'm like the minority because it's mostly white women that are that are in this world. And it's like, okay, why can't we turn on some of the, you know, other people, uh, men and women and women of color too, that can be in there because there's a different perspective that really that you bring to the table and, it, and it's there. But I think also if we take it even outside of what, what I do, and I'm finding a lot more filmmakers are doing that mentorship. Uh, and I will use Ava DuVernay and Array as a very good example of what she does. If you take a look, and if you guys don't know, look at Array now, look at whatever Ava DuVernay is doing. She's bringing, like Queen Sugar is a TV show that's here on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And what she did, and it's very set out to, she brought on producers and directors and writers of women uh, people of color, mostly women, and women who never worked in TV before. That was season one. Season two, she couldn't go back to that well because then all those people were working. And if you see how that kind of continues to spread out, but she never wore that on her sleeve. She just did it because it's what you do. Because the one thing that we've all discussed before, it's not like telling everybody what you do, but it's leading by example. And if it becomes part of your example, then this is what you do. So it's not a surprise. It's like, oh, look, you know, we have, you know, two uh, indigenous people that are going to make a movie. Well, yeah, but it should be. You know, it's not like, why is that? But I, we should celebrate that. But at the same time, at some point, it just needs to be part of it. But the only way that's going to be is we continue to, like, keep funneling, you know, that in. Just you make, know, and have make it normal. Discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> whatever normal is. Um, David, we're incredibly grateful for your time. The A to Z of Publicity Workshop podcasts are proudly supported by New Zealand On Air's Industry Development Fund, the US Embassy, and Images and Sound. Music for the podcast was provided by Poddington Bear, Fakatoki by Lalena Feunati, and voiceover by Gemma Gracewood. Kia ora.